Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories segue in dramatic fashion from an illegal printing press in Denmark to scavenger hunts in the desert minefields of North Africa. We start, though, with this extraordinary story from Alyssa Braithwaite. Alyssa writes, Cooey! Cooey! which roughly means Achtung, Achtung, in the Dwarug Aboriginal language. My name is Alyssa, and yes, I'm Australian. Don't hold it against me. I live with my English partner, Rob, in Sydney. He's an avid listener of your podcast, and he's been urging me to write to you for some time about my family's pretty remarkable war story. I'd always put it off, as it's a very emotional story for me, and one I feel a huge responsibility to do justice to. However... Once I heard the episode Prisoners of the Empire, I knew I had to bite the bullet and just do it. My grandfather, Dick Braithwaite, was a prisoner of war of the Japanese in North Borneo in the Second World War. He was one of only six survivors of the infamous Sandakan death marches of 1945. It was the worst atrocity ever inflicted on Australian soldiers. 1,787 Australian soldiers and 641 British soldiers perished. Dick was born James Richard Braithwaite on the 15th of June 1917. When World War II broke out, Dick was ambivalent about what to do. He had heard the stories from the First World War and seen what the war had done to those who returned. He said he had no desire to hurt anyone, nor any desire to be hurt by anyone. But he also felt that if it was necessary... All should do their part. He joined the Australian Army in June 1940 and became a bombardier in the 2nd 15th Field Battalion before Singapore fell in February 1942. Dick spent more than three years in a prisoner of war camp in Sandakan, North Borneo, where the prisoners were starved, beaten and refused medication to treat preventable tropical disease. Their main task was building two aerodrome runways, Each morning, they had a small meal of rice in camp, and then at around 7am they'd walk just over two kilometres to the aerodrome worksite. They worked with axes, saws, picks, and heavy hammers to clear and level the site in the hot tropical sun. At lunchtime, they had a small rice meal. At around 5.30pm, they would walk the two kilometres back to camp. They did this six days out of seven, and on Sunday there were other camp duties. Dick's best mate in the camp was a man by the name of Wal Blatch, a farmer's son from western New South Wales, who was a bank clerk before the war. Less than a year before, at the age of 21, he had married a beautiful young woman called Joy. He spoke of her often to Dick. From seeing her picture and hearing so much about her, Dick fell in love with this young woman without even meeting her. Dick estimated that around 600 men died in the Sandakan camps, 
from malaria and other diseases, but mainly from starvation. Then the death marches began in January 1945. Dick was part of the second death march, which left the camp in Sandakan in May 1945. The men in the second march were much less fit than those who had left in the first march four months earlier, and the prisoners received very little food. They were little more than skin and bones. The first night they marched from 7pm, not resting until 11am the following day. The march continued in this manner for five days. The men were sick, hungry and exhausted. When a person tripped, another would often reach out an arm and grab them if they could. But some guards would beat any prisoner caught helping another. The men gritted their teeth in the belief that if they could just keep going, they would survive to return to their families in Australia. Most were walking barefoot, often in heavy tropical rain, on an uneven, muddy and slippery surface. For men who were fit and healthy, the march would have been a difficult journey. But for these sick, starving men, it was a terrible, murderous ordeal. Early each morning, Dick suffered a malarial attack with blackouts and required help to get moving on the march. He was weakened by beriberi too, but counted himself lucky that a bad tropical ulcer on the back of his leg had finally healed up a few days before the march began. It became clear to Dick and the others that the shots they heard were the Japanese murdering men who could go no further. On the tenth day of the march, Dick was going up a slippery slope and having great difficulty when he was attacked and severely beaten by a Japanese guard and almost killed. Struggling to get up, he likely would have died there in the mud, but for a warrant officer from his unit who came by and urged him on at that crucial moment. Get up, son. You can make it. You've come this far. Dick hoarsely replied, I'll be there, Bob. Dick realised he was now one of the weaker ones, and he wasn't sure he could keep up the pace. If he remained with the march, he would probably not last another 24 hours. While he was now too weak to help anyone, he felt if he escaped, he would not be a burden on anyone, particularly his mate Wall. That night he spoke quietly to Wall. Wall was deeply concerned about Dick's condition and asked what he was going to do. Dick said, I'd rather go and die in the jungle like an animal than have these animals do me in. Wall gently said, You've got no chance. Dick replied, I know. Wall loyally said, All right, if you decide to go, I'll go with you. But Dick felt Wall's chances were still probably best if Wall went on his own. He would only slow Wall down. Wall really thought escape was foolish. The next morning on the march, the opportunity for escape suddenly presented itself. Dick found himself alone and momentarily out of sight after climbing a steep bank. He darted off the track. He'd only gone about 15 feet when his way was blocked by a large fallen tree. He flattened himself against it before the next guard appeared. He lay motionless as various groups of prisoners and guards walked past. Forest ants crawled all over him as he pretended to be dead. He had a malarial attack and spent ages trying to suppress a cough. Eventually, he could no longer hold it in and he jerked upright with an explosive cough. A passing guard saw and heard this. He stopped, unslung his rifle and seemed to be looking right at Dick, who froze. However, the guard didn't fire, and after a while he lowered his gun and went on. Perhaps the guard thought Dick was as good as dead, so why waste a bullet? Perhaps he didn't actually see him. 
Perhaps he had lost the heart for more killing. Who knows? So many times Dick felt he should have died during the death march and his escape. It was something he struggled to understand for the rest of his life. In the afternoon, he thought all the prisoners and guards had passed. He got to his feet and made his way through the jungle. In the late afternoon, the track he was walking along took a sharp turn and he spotted a lone Japanese soldier coming along the trail. He hadn't seen him. Dick found a branch and used it to hit him on the head, knocking him to the ground. The hate and anger of so many experiences of the past three years flooded to the surface and he cried out the names of all his friends who had died as he killed the soldier. Desperate for food, Dick ate raw slugs, lizards, purple berries, water snails and a frog. At one point, he came face to face with an orangutan. They both got the fright of their lives and ran off in the opposite direction. Eventually, he no longer felt hungry, one of the final symptoms of extreme starvation. He felt like he was going mad. He sat with his head in his hands and said out loud, This is it. This is where I die. Somehow he found the strength to go on and came across a lone local boatman. He took a chance and called out to the man in Malay, telling him he was Australian. After a long standoff, the man came to his side of the river and motioned for Dick to get in the boat. He took him back to his village, where the family hid him in a false wall in their house for days as they fed him food and he regained some strength. A Filipino man, Loreto Padua, who lived in the village, then smuggled him out in a boat at night and managed to get him to an American PT boat. While in hospital, after his rescue, an Australian colonel came in to see Dick and said, We're going in now to look for your friends. Dick turned to the wall and cried like a baby. He said, You're too late. And they were. Almost all were dead, including his best mate, Wall. When he returned to Australia, Dick made it his mission to get in touch with the families of the men he knew from the camp, who had received very little official news. He told them what he could about their loved ones. In this way, he got in touch with his mate Wall's widow, Joy. When Joy received a telegram in late September 1945, stating that her husband Wall had died, her world fell apart. She declared that the Joy had gone from her life and she would henceforth be known as Joyce. She remained in bed all day, wailing and sobbing. She had trusted that God would look after Wall and he had let her down. After a couple of days in bed, she had a religious experience in the middle of the night. Her room filled with a warm light and she became aware of a figure at the foot of her bed, who she interpreted to be an angel. It did not speak, but somehow communicated to her that God would take care of her and she should not worry. Her faith was restored. Dick told her much that she didn't know, and she learned that Wall's death had been part of a vast and national tragedy. While together, Dick had a malaria attack. He begged not to be sent to hospital after spending so much time in hospital after the war, so Joyce cared for him at her parents' home. She was everything Wall had described, beautiful, intelligent and compassionate. He was smitten. Dick was ill in bed at the Luss house for two weeks, being nursed by Joy. After those two weeks, Dick proposed to her. She said, but he haven't even kissed me. He replied, you're my best friend's wife and it would not be right. They did go on to marry and had three children. My father was their firstborn, named Richard Wallace Braithwaite, after Joyce's two husbands, a walking war memorial. My grandfather died in 1986, still wanting his story to be properly told. 
My dad spent the best part of 40 years researching and writing his book, Fighting Monsters, an intimate history of the Sandakan tragedy. All the information in this letter came from his incredible book. My dad succumbed to cancer just three days after the book was launched at the Australian War Memorial in September 2016. Joyce had died two years earlier in 2014 at the age of 95. After her death, the family set up a scholarship for school kids in Sandakan as a way of giving something back to the local people who helped Dick. In 2019, my sister, my mother and I visited Sandakan to present the Dick and Joyce Braithwaite Memorial Scholarship, which provides money to promising young students from disadvantaged backgrounds to pay for their further education. While we were there, we walked a small part of the Death March track and also met with the children of Loretto Padua, the man who smuggled Dick out to the American boat. We spread some of Dad's ashes in Sandakan at the site of the POW camp, now a beautiful, lush memorial garden. And the story doesn't end there. Just last week, we learned that the Australian War Memorial are including Dick, Joyce and Wall's story in a new learning resource called Endurance. It will be sent to every school in Australia for their story to live on for the next generation. Best wishes, Alyssa Braithwaite. Our second story comes from Mary Rycroft, who writes, Hi there. Recent podcast prompted me to send you my dad's tales from his service in the Queen's own Royal West Kent Regiment during the war. Sergeant Robert Rycroft wrote these memories down when he was in his 90s. Somewhere in Italy, I cannot remember where, we were out of the line but within range of Jerry's guns. I was at the time in charge of 12 platoon B Company, and we were in a big barn with lots of straw bales. We lay there relaxing and watching the rats, lots of them, running along the wooden beams. The farmer brought his dog in, and it jumped up onto the beams via the straw bales and polished the rats off one after another. We spent the night there, and the next day Mick Connell asked me to take a couple of men down the line to a well to fill the platoon's water bottles. Tragedy was to follow. While we were away, the barn received a direct hit and went up in flames. Those inside had no chance, and in one fell swoop, I lost half my platoon. This is another story from my dad. Once again, I was in charge of a platoon, ten this time, my old mates. We were in a village in Italy, holed up in shops and houses on the main street. Looking out from the front of the shop, we could see a range of hills. As far as we were concerned, the enemy was long gone. We had settled down in this place, having a natter and a smoke, when a message came over the wireless that Major Stocker, company commander, wanted to see all platoon commanders. Jim Bassett, our wireless operator, gave me the message. Taking the necessary Tommy gun with me, and with Chunky Mars heaving open the heavy oak door, I ventured outside. There was a crack of a rifle from the hills, and a bullet thudded into the door jamb, just inches from my head. Chunky heard it, opened the door straight away, and pulled me back inside. I never did get to know what Major Stocker wanted. The final story I wanted you to hear is from Dad's time in Africa and the Middle East, where he spent time with a brave Irishman called Paddy Dillon. I followed in Paddy's footsteps when he and I went into the minefields night after night to get supplies of cigarettes, sweets and chocolates from the tanks that had been knocked out. They were called the January and February minefields in the desert. Whilst in Iraq, Paddy became ill, suffering horrendous headaches. Eventually he was to die of a tumour on the brain. Paddy's funeral was something else. Colonel Whitty had told us that he would arrange for the Pioneer Platoon to construct a coffin. This it did, 
and come the day of the funeral, we had two trucks, the first containing the driver, the Padre and four men, friends of Paddy. The second truck was driven by Charlie Hughes. In the back was Paddy in his coffin, with Vic Barnett and myself. We set off across the bumpy desert track towards Kirkuk, our destination, where there was a small cemetery. Halfway through the journey, a disaster occurred. The coffin was shaking about so much that it fell apart. Pandemonium! Hooting like mad, Charlie managed to get the leading truck to stop and come back to us. Thankfully, this one had a rope and between us we managed to parcel poor Paddy back in his box, tied up with rope. The rest of the journey was made without further incidents. The grave was ready and Paddy was duly lured six feet under. A short service and we prepared to return when suddenly the driver of the first truck said, Oh, my rope! He dashed back, jumped into the grave and somehow managed to unravel the rope from around the coffin. That done, we all went back to camp. So my dad's war went up through Italy and finished when he was put in charge of a small group, including Red Cross nurses, who went into the Greek mountains delivering Red Cross parcels to the villagers who were in a dire state. His final comments on the war were, They say it takes ten backroom boys behind the lines to keep one infantryman up the line. I think I'd rather be that one infantryman. It's far more exciting. Thank you, Alan James, for accompanying me on my evening dog walks over the past months. Your We Have Ways has been an excellent companion. My very best wishes, Mark Rycroft. Next up is this story from listener Patrick Lees. Dear James and Al, Having been introduced to the pod by a long-time listener, I've been catching up on the many entertaining and informative episodes you've produced over the last couple of years. At the end of a podcast in January, you briefly touched on a question about whether heavy bombers had shot down other planes. This reminded me of two incidents that involved my maternal grandfather, Ryland Leonard Luffman, known as Len, which might be of interest. Len was the third of four brothers, and with the older two away in different battalions of the Dorset Regiment, he was a bored teenager in Bournemouth during the early years of the war. In the summer of 1942, he convinced the recruiters that he was older than his 16 years and joined the RAF. He became a wireless operator with 101 Squadron flying ABC-equipped Lancasters based at Ludford Magma in Lincolnshire, apparently nicknamed Mudford for fairly obvious reasons. 101 Squadron's planes did not fly together on raids, but instead were spread out in the bomber stream as the ABC equipment was effectively a high-powered radio transmitter, nicknamed the Airborne Cigar. It was manned by a German-speaking special duties officer who would be jamming German radio frequencies to try to confuse the Luftwaffe. Inevitably, those planes were often homed in on and the squadron's losses were disproportionately high. Len's crew flew more than 20 sorties together from the summer of 1943. Their luck ran out on the infamous raid on Nuremberg at the end of March 1944 when they were shot down near Schleiden in North Rhine-Westphalia. There seems to be some debate in the records about whether they were the victims of a Junkers 88 night fighter or a nervous rear gunner in a Halifax. Len was one of only two of the eight crew that survived that night and was soon captured, having injured his legs when he landed after bailing out. He spent the rest of the war as a prisoner of war, possibly at Stalagluft 6. The other survivor, Sergeant Don Brinkhurst, somehow managed to evade capture and made it home, rejoining the squadron and flying operations again before the end of the year. Five of the others are buried side by side 
in Rheinberg Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery. A few weeks before the Nuremberg Raid, Leonard turned 18 after being commissioned as a pilot officer. Not long before that, he had shot down a night fighter while standing in as upper mid-gunner. Sadly, I never got to meet Len. He married my grandmother in January 1946, demobbed and became a father at the end of December. He went to teach a training college and became an FA qualified referee, but rejoined the RAF a year or so later and trained to be a navigator. In late June 1951, he and his two crewmates were sadly killed in a night training accident at Giverton Park in South Yorkshire. The pilot became disoriented by the lights of the coal mine and crashed their Wellington into a field on the approach to RAF Swinderby, fortunately narrowly missing the houses in the village. Keep up the good work with the pod. All the best, Patrick Lees. And Patrick has attached an edition of the London Gazette from 1944, which sets out the official details of Len shooting down a night fighter with his own DFM citation, which we have posted on Twitter. Next up, two tales from Danish listener Jan Johansson. Dear Alan James, I cannot believe we are past the triple century, but absolutely loving the podcast. It's the right antidote against the pandemic blues. Long may you continue. I have two stories. One about my dear friend, Captain Eric Winkle Brown, and one about the last pandemic, my grandfather and the downfall of Hitler. Well, maybe not Hitler, but at least the Germans in Denmark. Many years ago, as lecture secretary in the Bristol branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society, I came across Captain Eric Brown. Later, having returned to my native Denmark, I invited him over to do lectures. He brought over his map of northern Germany and part of Denmark, complete with pencil lines of his flight path to the large German military airfield at Grove, now Kurup Air Station. After being told in May 1945 that Grove was safely in the hands of the British Army, Captain Brown, a fellow officer and two German pilots, set off for the airfield in search of the latest German aircraft. On arrival at Grove, they didn't find the British Army. Instead, 2,000 German soldiers in rank and file were waiting to surrender. Captain Brown, as a senior officer, accepted the surrender. But now what? It was too late to fly back behind Allied lines, and Captain Brown and his fellow travellers were in a precarious position. However, they didn't need to worry. The local Danish inhabitants came out in their hundreds to greet them and formed rings around them in order to shield them from the Germans. They also brought the local schnapps, hidden from the Germans, and a happy, if uneasy, night was had until the army arrived the next morning. After hearing that story, I always sent Captain Brown a bottle of schnapps on his birthday, as a reminder of the pleasant side of Denmark. The other story is about my grandfather, who sadly died before I was born. He was a sailor in the Danish Merchant Navy on the last generation of full-rigged ships. He fell ill with the Spanish flu in 1919 and spent the money he had saved for his helmsman exam at a sanatorium in the US. He returned to Denmark and opened a tobacco shop. Years later, the Germans invaded Denmark on April 9, 1940. As a sailor, my grandfather had very strong feelings towards the invading forces, and although happily selling tobacco to the Germans, he spent his evenings and nights with the early beginnings of the Danish resistance. The printing press for their illegal newspaper was in the back of his shop, and several nuisance raids were made against the Germans, he never told my father exactly what they did. When my father was born in 1943, my grandfather decided to withdraw from an active role in the Danish resistance, although the printing of illegal newspapers continued in his shop until the end of the war. 
He did leave a couple of reminders, though. A P08 Luger and a Walter P38 pistol, liberated from the Germans, which I am fortunate to have in my possession, properly registered. I regularly use them, and they always remind me of my grandfather's story and legacy. Kind regards, Jan. Our final story this week is from Tom Campbell, who writes, Hello. I have always loved all aspects of World War II and felt like a kid in a candy store when I discovered your podcast. Keep up the good work. I'd like to tell you a different type of World War II story relayed to me by my mother-in-law. In 1941, with the Germans advancing toward her village in Lithuania, her father ordered her mother and sisters to leave the farm with the promise of meeting up with them in a few weeks. They never saw her father again and spent the next four years of their lives wandering around Europe as displaced people. One night, she asked me what the term was for an airplane flying low and shooting their guns on the ground. I answered strafing and she replied yes, that happened to myself and my family during the war. After a number of years in a displaced persons camp, she emigrated to Cleveland, Ohio, where a large population of Lithuanians settled after the war. There she learned English and met my father-in-law, also from Lithuania. She ended up teaching high school, while my father-in-law became an accountant. Fast forward 70 years, and my mother-in-law was attending a museum exhibit about displaced people in the Baltic. She walked into an exhibition hall with large murals of displaced people on the wall. She looked at them and said, There's my mother, and there's my sister. Her family were in those pictures. My mother-in-law is in her 90s and still active and sharp as a tack. She walks four miles a day and looks 20 years younger than she is. She has spoken to high school students about her experiences in World War II and is still active in the Lithuanian community. A truly remarkable woman. Yours sincerely, Tom Campbell. And Tom has sent us two pictures of his mother-in-law which we've posted on Twitter. That's all for this week. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com and mark it family stories so we don't miss it. Or leave it on the members' site under the family stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.